episode 136, post-war whaling. In 1931, the Geneva Convention for the Regulation of Whaling tried to set responsible seasons, quota limits and no-take categories and zones to ensure the tragedy of the commons experienced with fur seals a century earlier didn't repeat in the whaling industry. In 1937, the International Agreement for the Regulation of Whaling tried to set responsible seasons and quota limits and no-take categories and zones to ensure the tragedy of the commons experienced with fur seals a century earlier didn't repeat in the whaling industry. In 1946, the International Convention for the Regulation of Whaling tried to set responsible seasons, quota limits and no-take... Ah, you get the picture. Signed by 15 nations in 1946, enacted in 1948, expanded in scope in 1956, and mostly ignored by anyone who wanted to whale where and when they pleased, the convention sounds like a conservation initiative dreamt up by green activists, but it's really a profit protection scheme overseen by the key beneficiaries, the nations forming the International Whaling Commission. Many of those nations, now numbering 88 but fluctuating wildly as some nations redact their endorsement of the convention and others re-establish theirs, Norway, Sweden and the Netherlands currently ratifying it for the third time, hold no history of whaling and no intention of whaling in the future, but receive financial aid for preferential treatment from other nations if they vote the way larger, richer whaling nations want them to. The IWC can't decide what actually constitutes a whale, with some nations interpreting the ICRW as only pertaining to baleen whales and sperm whales, while others read it as incorporating all cetaceans under its aegis. I'm going to leave the long, storied and largely stupid history of the politics of whaling in the second half of the 20th century to people who already know that narrative back to front, and I've got a couple of colleagues in mind to interview for that perspective. But know, as I launch into this episode, that the problem of overuse of whale stocks was recognised before the Second World War, and people were trying to do something to make the industry sustainable, while others were trying to get theirs while the getting was good. Where the Hectoria Whaling Company station at Whalers Bay, Deception Island, and the Storm Bolland Company station at Port Jean d'Arc in the Kerguelens, already lay decades dormant by the 1950s, some of the shore-based whaling stations at South Georgia carried on into the second half of the 20th century. South Georgia's smaller shore stations at Ocean Harbour, Prince Olav Harbour and Godful already shut up shop prior to the war. Husvik and Stromness stations went into mothballs for the duration of the war, leaving only the largest stations at Grytviken and Leith Harbour occupied. Throughout the decades after the war, the scale of each operator's whale processing diminished. Not only did the bulk of oil extraction occur aboard factory vessels, the catch per unit effort in the industry overall shrank as the whale stocks depleted under the increasing pressure applied by market demand and technological improvements in finding the remaining whales. Husvik closed up shop in 1960. Stromness operated until 1961, though it only served as a ship and machinery repair workshop in its final decade. Grytviken processed its last whale in 1964. Leith Harbour operated until 1965, its final three years in sublease to a trio of Japanese companies, one of them being Nippon Suisan Kaisha, a company involved in Southern Ocean whaling between 1934 and 2005. Nippon Suisan Kaisha began exploring whaling as a money-spinning diversification in its core fishing interests in 1934 but all Japanese shipping got turned over to supporting the Super Happy Fun Time Greater East Asia Co-Prosperity Sphere for a decade. The increasing demand for all Japanese vessels to engage in the logistical support of that imperial gambit saw whaling fall outside that naval remit after 1941. Company ships returned to Antarctic waters in 1946 as part of the urgent need to feed the starving nation. The USA didn't return to whaling after the war having turned huge profits in keeping Allied nations supplied with machinery and munitions. The American economy trebled in size during the conflict, and piffling profits arising from hard, smelly, dangerous work in the Southern Ocean held little appeal to Americans in the following decades, during which a single-income family with a union-protected job could buy a house, take holidays, and raise their 3.59 average children in a newly broadened middle class enjoying life expectancies, diets and possessions, previously only available to nobility and clergy, 
if they were white and Protestant, though that's a bit tautological seeing as families with Irish and Italian heritages only became white in the eyes of white Protestant Americans when they sided against the civil rights movement that ended the Jim Crow era. The nation the Great Hunger and the Great Depression pushed them to respectively, forced them to earn their white privilege by demonstrating how hard they were willing to kick down at other races. But I digress. Russia chartered Norwegian vessels to learn how to whale Southern Ocean whale populations in the wake of the Second World War. They learnt the trade quickly before making their own whaling fleet from Soviet steel, crewing the ships with steely-eyed Soviet mariners, a special breed of hard cases that hold a special place in my heart for seeing me through some of the worst storms at sea I've experienced. I don't know much about post-Soviet Russian mariners as the youngest Russian officer I ever sailed under was 60. The last UK-based interest in Southern Ocean whaling ended in 1963, with Japanese interests running Leith Harbour and the sale of Salvesons, once the world's largest whaling enterprise, remaining factory vessels and chaser boats to Japanese companies. But we're getting ahead of the narrative there. In the Austral summer of 1949-1950, nine Norwegian, three British, two Japanese, one South African, one Dutch and one Soviet factory vessel sailed the Southern Ocean, served by 216 chaser boats. The oldest of the factory vessels, the Norwegian-flagged Antarctic, didn't feature a stern slipway or an onboard flensing plan, the whales being processed alongside and the resulting whale chunks being craned aboard. The International Commission on Whaling introduced the baleen whale season in an attempt to hold the annual kill to a sustainable yield. Only sperm whales constituted fair game prior to the season opening on the 22nd of December where these toothed whales with the spermaceti-filled melon constituted the high-end commodity at the height of the Nantucket whaling boom, the synthetic oil industry reduced their value in the century since. Sperm whales became the spam whale. The ICW also set minimum lengths on each species, with gunners expected to make the judgement before firing their harpoon. Any whale killed got processed, but penalties applied for animals falling below the minimum size if the ship carried people reporting on such matters, and if those people reporting such matters were immune to bribes. The minimums ran as follows. Blue whales, 21.3 metres. Fin whales, 16.8 metres. Say whales, whales, 12.2 metres. Humpback, 10.7 metres. Sperm whales, 10.7 metres. Quota limits attempted to establish a sustainable yield, but with too little data to establish a scientifically defensible limit, and too much money on the table, and too little oversight to ensure strict compliance to what limits did arise, meant this management mechanism proved moot. In 1950, the limit was set at 16,000 blue whale units, where one blue whale unit equals two fin whales equals 2.5 humpbacks equals six say whales. whales. Ships reported their catch regularly to help keep count of the total catch. Again, with the caveat that reporting's only ever as accurate as much as the people doing it aren't corruptible and the ship's crew aren't trying to corrupt them. Crews resented these mandated radio transmissions as they gave away a ship's position along a transect if measured by one radio direction finder receiver and precisely if measured by two. If a ship reported high numbers and other ships got a fix on where those high numbers arose, that ship could expect company in that hotspot within the day. Greater self-interest saw ships transmit meteorological information, which were collated into forecasts and rebroadcast by the South African Bureau of Meteorology Office in Cape Town. Ships transmitted their MetObs in codes established by their company and shared with the South African meteorologists. These transmissions could still offer ships information about the position of a transmitter to anyone monitoring their radio direction finding instruments, but didn't share catch data, and whalers deemed the benefit of accurate weather forecasts greater than the location secrecy of their vessels. Post-Second World War whaling ramped up quickly, with whale oil fetching prices as much as three times pre-war maxima. Investing in whaling companies paid handsome dividends to shareholders in the short term 
and the new ships launched in this period put previous factory vessels in the shade in terms of size, range and whale processing efficiency. Five whales on the flensing plan and another ten afloat queued for their turn at the ramp became a common sight, marking this out as the peak of Southern Ocean whaling, but well beyond peak Southern Ocean whale stocks. In another switch up in the story of the fortunes of and made from whales, with corsetry out of fashion and plastics making baleen redundant in those industries still calling for strong, shapeable base materials, whalers no longer kept baleen. Charles Swithenbank, writing in Foothold on Antarctica, his account of the NBSAE, records the whale mouthparts going over the side of the factory ship carrying them south to make space for more oil. To make the best possible use of space and freeboard, thereby offering the operators the longest possible time at sea and therefore the greatest scope for profit, the factory vessels bunkered fuel in the same tanks as slated for later holding the whale oil. In the new purpose-built vessels, the tankage took up two-thirds of the ship's total internal volume. These fuel bunkers received a viscous liquid lining that the whalers scrubbed off with fresh water once the engineers drained all the diesel out. But trying to completely drain a tank and trying to scrub a tank clean while it's moving about on the open ocean and removing absolutely all traces of diesel is the fever dream of a whaling company accountant. Diesel remained and contaminated the whale oil making it imperative to completely fill a tank with product and thereby reduce the contamination to within government limits for human consumption. Chemists and chemical engineers sailed with the factory vessels to ensure the best possible product arose from the digesters and to decide which tanks to fill with what grade of oil in what ratios in order to maximise the quality and therefore the price of the oil the ship brought to market. The rate at which chasers delivered rockles to the stern of their factory ship sometimes left carcasses putrefying on the water. Once a carcass passed beyond the point the best oil already degraded, that carcass got bumped down the priority list. The factory still had to process the animal, but everyone made more money if the best carcasses got processed first. The lower quality oil processed from a day-long dead animal when mixed with higher grade oil from freshly killed animals reduced the ratio of the products of putrefaction to levels sufficient to still pass the finished product as fit for human consumption. Putrescine and cadaverine for sale in detectable but low quantities. The upper limit for processing a carcass was set at 33 hours, so when a factory vessel stood as a bottleneck in the production line, the chasers received orders to cease hunting, ensuring minimum waste in a blubbery and brutal calculus always striving to maximise profits. The Norwegian government employed inspectors to sail on factory ships and report, independently of the whaling company, on all aspects of the operation. Fisheries observers are important for holding operators to quota limits, season start and end points, size limits, exclusion zones and to prevent high marking, which is when a fishing boat keeps but later throws away its catch of a particular species, because they've come across an opportunity to catch a more valuable species, thereby doubling the environmental impact of the operation for no human benefit beyond the profit made by the crew and the owner. Fisheries Observer is a job carrying a lot of opportunities to incur the ire of fishers, and I don't envy anyone that role, though I know a few people who do it well, and for whom the verbal and occasionally physical abuse is water off a duck's back, and who keep going back for more. There's good coin in it too, just not for me. I get enough bullshit from tourists just for holding them to company SOPs, so I hate to think how nasty people get when you tell them not to make more money. Whaling inspectors collected baleen samples for age assessment and gonads for reproductive data. Keeping a crew fed and warm in the Southern Ocean costs money, so whale vessels worked 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, to maximise company profits. Christensen boats gave their crews 9 hours off to celebrate Christmas, but that was as much religious observance as shareholders could contemplate because piety always takes a back seat in the eyes of alleged believers when money's on the table. The other big post-war whaling development involved the use of aircraft as whale spotters. I recorded in an episode about the Banzari that a whale spotting de Havilland moth floatplane carried south by a Norwegian factory vessel, the Cosmos, 
went missing in the vicinity of the Balleny Islands in 1929, and I'm sure more aircraft were carried south in that role than the one I read about based on its disappearance. But post-war whale spotting came into its own with war surplus airframes and support machinery. The superstition that aircraft would bring bad luck to a ship seems to disappear entirely from Southern Ocean history in the 1950s. Perhaps after many years of aircraft bringing bad luck to mariners from outside their ship, made a tame aircraft carried on board seem a good idea. Every change faces intransigence from past masters though, and the arrival of another wave of airborne whale spotters put a number of captains, gunners and shareholders out of sorts. Whiny articles and speeches about the supremacy of the whalers' experience and smarts beggaring any advantage aircraft might bring played out in the same, predictable way hand harpooners applied when Sven Fern developed the gun-fired version and as sailing masters espoused when motorised vessels began eroding their marketability. We're seeing the pattern repeat on so many fronts today that I won't bore you with any present-day examples and leave you to find your own, bringing to an end that paragraph with my son's observation the tradition is just peer pressure from dead people. In the 1946-47 Austral summer, a British and Norwegian whaling interest kicked off the post-war aerial whale spotting with supermarine walrus flying boats of the type carried south to and left behind on Heard Island by the Inari. With aircraft carriers and helicopters taking over the role of putting eyes in the air over naval fleets, the days of catapult-launched fleet spotters lay in the past, so the British factory vessels also brought bargain-priced catapult gear used to get the aircraft up to flying speed and mounted them astern on the factory ship Balena. With little likelihood of encountering ground flat enough to make a wheeled landing, the companies removed the undercarriage, thereby saving some weight, thereby increasing the fuel fraction, thereby increasing the aircraft's range. The Norwegian whaling companies didn't invest in the catapult gear, water takeoffs costing their walrus spotters fuel and thereby decreasing their range, but the investment paid off regardless. By fulfilling their original role of increasing the height of the whalers' eyeballs and therefore increasing the distance the whalers could see, the walrus paid for themselves and their crews and spurred further investment in airborne faculties. Pilots and observers could spot whales from as high as 10,000 feet in clear weather and could track whales beneath the surface from 1,000 feet above the sea. Catapult-launched walrus carried fuel sufficient for five hours flight. Already noted by aviators operating over the Atlantic as drafty and cold aircraft to fly in, even with the heater turned up to 11, the Southern Ocean examples employed a shipboard generator recharging a battery array on the plane to power heated flying suits originally developed for aircrew operating at high altitudes. Copper wiring threaded through the cloth layers heated up through electrical induction and prevented hypothermia and frostbite but caused minor burns and, when used in a saltwater context, whole body short circuit belters. I understood Warris came fitted with a petrol combustion heater as factory standard but an article on the machines carried aboard the British factory vessel Balena notes these devices as an aftermarket afterthought for the Southern Ocean. The crew also carried vacuum flasks of hot tea and self-heating cans of soup, which used an exothermic chemical reaction similar to pocket hand warmers to heat the contents. The walrus operated reliably but tied the hands of their parent vessels whenever in use. The ship needed to stay in clear water and clear air until the aircraft returned. On some occasions, when the weather changed for the worse in the aircraft's absence, the ship needed to make a slick on which the aviators might land. Ships generate such slicks by steaming fast to windward and then turning hard across the wind, leaving a short stretch of calm water to lure it. The flatter water makes it possible to alight, but the big steel lump at the end of the liquid runway only offers the pilot one shot at getting their landing right. The Walrus Pilots and Observer Navigator Radio Operator provided insights into the disposition of the pack and the distribution of whales generally. Lots of whales over there, fewer whales over here, no whales back there. Delivering their data to the bridge in the form of mud maps drawn while on the wing. 
The aircraft carried radio sets, but these served more to relay MET OBS and to maintain a link between the aviators and their controller on the factory vessel than to directly direct the chasers. The next step involved the technology that proved the final nail in the coffin of the ship-launched flying boat, helicopters. As mentioned in the first episode recounted the NBSAE, the helicopters available immediately after the Second World War weren't up to much and many operators looking for aerial access to tight spaces opted for bush planes, such as the de Havilland Beaver. Piston engine helicopters couldn't carry much payload, couldn't travel very far, incurred a heavy maintenance cost per unit flying hour compared to fixed wing aircraft and, when operating in remote areas, caused as many rescue situations as they resolved by breaking down more often than their fixed wing counterparts. Where most fixed wing aircraft are inherently stable and tend to fly straight and level until the monkeys inside it do something to throw off that equilibrium, helicopters are inherently unstable and require constant inputs to prevent rapid and usually catastrophic departures from straight and level orientations. My brother-in-law Richard, who served as crew chief on Bell UH-1 helicopters for the United States Army, once described his charge as 5,000 moving parts wrapped around an oil leak and the UH-1 he serviced was turbine-powered. Reciprocating engines feature thousands more moving parts, oscillating back and forth rather than just round and round in circles. So piston-engine helicopters feature far greater scope for something to go clang very loudly at inopportune moments and bring down the mood of everyone aboard than turbine-powered units. If your operation was tied to piston-engine flight regardless, the smart money lay with fixed-wing airframes because of the previously mentioned inherent stability alone, but added advantages arose in the greater payload, greater speed and greater range available because the engine wasn't pushing a tenth of its power into the anti-torque rotor on the tail just to prevent the machine spinning out of control, and the wings weren't generating all sorts of secondary and tertiary drag effects and lead lag differential lift. The only thing helicopters of the 1950s did better than the de Havilland Canada Beaver bush plane was land on a helipad. That even a lightly loaded bush plane still needs forward airspeed to remain airborne, so maritime operators adopt helicopters ahead of their land-based fixed-wing counterparts. Helicopters can take off and land with zero forward airspeed, cutting down the time spent steaming to windward to launch an aircraft and heave to when collecting one off the water. It's at this point I need to introduce Alan Bristow, who grew his helicopter charter service into the world's biggest civilian employer of helicopters and crews for some years. Son of a Royal Navy dockyard manager, Bristow joined the merchant service at age 16 at the outbreak of the Second World War. He twice survived sinking, once from Japanese gunfire in the Bay of Bengal, and once by a German torpedo near the Azores. He received credit for downing two Stuka dive bombers with the anti-aircraft gun on the forepeak of an ammunition ship during Operation Torch, the Allied landings in North Africa. Once he reached military service age, he joined the Royal Navy, training as a pilot on fixed-wing aircraft in Canada before his superiors sent him to Floyd Bennett Field, New York, to learn to fly these newfangled helicopters, receiving training on Sikorsky's R-4, mentioned in episodes recounting Operation High Jump as HNS-1s. The British called this primitive and difficult to fly first mass-produced helicopter the Hoverfly. Alan Bristow distinguished himself by not dying while learning to master its idiosyncrasies and in 1946 became the first pilot to land a helicopter on a British ship. After demobbing from the Royal Navy, he joined the Westland Aircraft Company as its chief helicopter test pilot as the former fixed-wing airframe manufacturer shifted its focus to license-built versions of Sikorsky's rotary wing designs. Bristow claimed he once experienced six engine failures in one day flying the machines coming off the assembly line. Sacked from Westland for punching their sales manager in the nose, though whether because of some dispute or just for the fact that they were a sales manager is unclear, Bristow turned his hand to helicopter crop dusting in Europe and Northern Africa. He started a helicopter sales company and earned the Croix de Guerre for bravery when he rescued four French soldiers pinned down by Viet Minh mortar fire and flying them to safety in a Hiller 360 helicopter he was trying to sell to the French forces 
trying to return French governance to Indochina after the Japanese kicked them out, and then the Allies kicked the Japanese out. Based on this demonstration of helicopter utility in mountainous, forested terrain, he sold eight Hiller 360s and a pilot training contract to the French Forces Medical Unit at Tonson Nut. On the advice of a French Foreign Legion mercenary friend he made in country, former SS paratrooper Wolfgang, Bristow got out of Indochina and headed to Hamburg, Germany. Wolfgang intended following his brother, a pre-war flenser in the Nazi factory vessels, into whaling. Some investor was restarting the pre-war German whaling concern, Sun Deutsche Walfangst, and Wolfgang sparked in Bristow an idea for further Hiller helicopter sales. In Kiel, Gunther and Wolfgang introduced Bristow to Kurt Reiter, the engineer in charge of the conversion of a tanker into a factory whaling vessel, and the conversion of a dozen war surplus flower-class corvettes into chaser vessels, all on the coin of one Aristotle Onassis. Reiter, already familiar with rotary wing flight in the form of collapsible autogyros carried as over-the-horizon target spotters for the U-boats his wartime efforts helped keep working for Admiral Dönitz, saw some merit in the idea of helicopters used in an analogous peacetime role. The gyrocopters towed along behind the submarine on a tether, nulling the need for an engine and all the torque issues most helicopters need to compensate for but also restricted its travel to a few hundred yards either side of the course of the U-boat. A helicopter could operate independent of the ship for as long as its fuel held out, offering far greater scouting potential. Two days after their initial meeting, Rieta sent Bristow to Monte Carlo to meet with Aristotle Onassis, who now requires his own introduction. Born in 1906 in the Anatolian city Smyrna, now Izmir, Turkey, to Greek parents, his father working as a shipping entrepreneur. Young Aristotle grew up while the city was under Greek administration in the wake of the First World War, and then the Greco-Turkish War returned the city to Turkish dominion. Greek families were out on their ear, and the Onassises lost many extended family members in the Great Fire of Smyrna, when either Turkish soldiers set fire to Greek-owned homes, businesses and churches, or when Greek residents self-immolated to make the Turks look bad. I'm betting on the former. In 1923, Aristotle Onassis arrived in Argentina on a Nansen passport, one of the former explorers' initiatives to protect and support refugees and stateless people in the wake of the First World War. Speaking Spanish, Turkish, English and Greek fluently, Aristotle readily picked up work as an operator in a telephone exchange. He studied commerce and port operations in his spare time. He started an import-export company, making big bucks in tobacco. He expanded into shipping and worked every possible angle to make money and appears to be one of the first shipping magnates to work his fleet under flags of convenience in order to gain tax breaks and to skirt market, labour and safety regulations. Aristotle Onassis enters the iced coffee narrative in a private dining room at the Hotel de Paris in Monte Carlo, meeting with Alan Bristow to discuss the use of helicopters in whaling operations. Bristow confidently pointed out that a few hours airborne over the sea would allow him to assess the whales in a body of water the entire dozen chaser boats might take three days to cover. Onassis wanted to know the specs of the various models in production at Hiller, Bell, Sikorsky, and Piasecki, but only representing killer products at the time, Bristow made sure to talk up the simplicity of that company's main rotorhead design, Hiller's main manufacturing and serviceability advantage over its competitors' machines. While Aristotle advised Bristow to invest in mineral oil exploration, seeing the future of the whaling industry written large in the diminishing catch-per-unit effort data he already assessed, he agreed to try helicopters out on his newly fitted out whaling fleet and to retain Bristow as his purchasing agent and pilot on that project. Onassis didn't take to whaling as a long-term investment. He was out to make some quick cash with some ships he got cheap and figured Bristow's helicopter might buy back some catch-per-unit effort over the shrinking whale stocks. 
Onassis sent Bristow to the USA and gave him six months to select the best possible match to the whaling needs. His need to sell Hiller units null. Bristow spent his time visiting Kellett, Cayman, Bell, Sikorsky, Piazeki, and Platt LePage and testing their machines. Of those available, the Hiller 360 and the Bell 47 stood out as the best match for the task. Matched for range and payload, the Hiller's paddle blade actuated main rotor allowed the pilot to trim for hands-free flight aerodynamically. Bell's rotor system used hydraulically boosted actuators and didn't allow for hands-free flight, so Bristow stuck with the company he already sprued. Hiller supplied the machine and an engineer to sailing company with it. Bristow formed Air Whaling Limited and sent a list of requirements for a helipad to Rieta, who fabricated and installed it between the funnels of the Olympic Challenger. A geared turntable system allowed the helipad to rotate the hiller to face into the wind, regardless which way it blew, and independent of the ship's movement. Bristow joined the ship in Montevideo as it bunkered fuel in preparation for its first money-making voyage. The captain, Lars Anderson, crewed as chief harpooner for the Nazi whaling fleet in the lead-up to the Second World War. He and all other Norwegian crew working for the Nazis were considered persona non grata in Norway even before the Nazi occupation because their local industry didn't want Southern Ocean competition. So the ship's crew largely comprised his Norwegian shipmates from the Nazi-funded whaling projects pre-war. Quieslings banished from Norway for aiding the Nazi occupiers and former Nazis like Gunther and Wolfgang. Captain Anderson held little faith in the helicopter and the scheme wasn't aided when a German worker at Hiller cabled the ship to let on that the only engineer willing to take the whaling contract, Joe Soloy, only fielded a six-week veterans helicopter maintenance course having served with the US Marines on Guadalcanal. Bristow wore his fleet air arm uniform and all his medals in facing down Captain Anderson and his officers in the face of this attempt to damn the aerial spotting program, vouching for Joe. While assembling the Hiller at Montevideo Airport, Bristow gave Soloy a short and sharp familiarisation on the machine he suddenly needed to know every nut and bolt of, and Soloy, much to Bristow's relief, proved a quick study and a reliable pair of hands. Together, they worked through the test flight series and flew the Hiller aboard the Olympic Challenger in October 1951. Shortly after, the ship departed, flying a Panamanian flag of convenience, Onassis registering his fleet there because Panama didn't sign on to the International Convention on the Regulation of Whaling. The ship passed west around Cape Horn and headed for the Ross Sea, Captain Anderson intending going after the blue whales he hunted there before the war. A thick band of pack ice and an associated fog bank kept Captain Anderson out of his preferred hunting ground. Bristow made a flight and seeing beyond the fog picked a path of leads. The ship still needed to do some ice bashing to link the leads together, but the chasers followed through and into open water after two days in the pack, three whole weeks ahead of schedule. Captain Anderson began rethinking his attitude toward the helicopter. At first, Bristow flew the Hiller in a creeping line search ahead of the chasers, blooding along at 40 knots and 300 feet above the sea, just outside the Hiller's dead man's curve, the speed and height at which an auto-rotation became impossible if the engine failed, all the while looking for the telltale white puffs of whale blows, or the slicks of whales surfacing and leaving behind their footprints. He used a HF radio to send coded messages back to the Olympic Challenger which then directed the chasers onto the highest concentrations of whales. Later, when confident he could read the drift accurately from the play of wind on the water below, and thereby tracked his position confidently by dead reckoning, Bristow began ranging beyond the Olympic Challenger's horizon, sometimes up to 100 nautical miles from the ship. Bristow's logbook recounts a minimum of 5 hours and as many as 11 hours airborne on days when the weather afforded good flying. Those days came few and far between. 
Clear air and low winds aren't an Antarctic specialty, and a number of storms saw the hiller firmly dogged down and its crew battened in below decks. Far worse were days when clear, still air changed while the hiller flew its search, the sky becoming dark overcast and the water storm-tossed on Bristow's return to the Olympic Challenger. Landing a helicopter is harder than most things I do with confidence, and landing a helicopter on a heaving deck with little to no chance of survival, in spite of a smelly rubber immersion suit, if you get anything wrong, lies so far outside my wheelhouse that I just never try it. Whiteouts came on suddenly, and the only way for Bristow to survive the disorienting effects, bad enough for a fixed-wing pilot and catastrophic for a helicopter operating to visual flight rules, he needed to fly down to the water surface as soon as he recognised the onset, and to fly very slowly back toward the ship, using the darkness below to maintain orientation. Icing was an even bigger problem. Ice forms wherever it's cold enough for water to shift from liquid to solid, wind and centripetal force notwithstanding. Fog or rain or sleet the hiller flew through led to ice forming on the rotor blades, adding weight to the airframe and altering the shape of the rotor blade airfoil. This eroded the lift that each blade generated, gradually requiring more power from the engine and greater angles of attack on each blade to keep the machine airborne until one or the other option reached its limit, at which the aircraft descended until it ran out of sky. Bristow found himself in this situation in a whiteout. Barely above the wave tops to begin with, he noticed the aircraft needed more and more power to maintain height and speed. Airframe vibration increased as the uneven ice load threw the main rotor out of balance. He sighted and managed to land on a tabular iceberg, converting every last newton of his 30 knot airspeed into the height required not to smear himself along the flanks of the iceberg, coming to a shaky rest on its groaning, unstable surface. Bristow used a hand-cranked emergency beacon to alert the ship to his bearing. Assuming the ship heard the call and was on its way, he called up Solo on the VHF radio when he thought the ship might be in range. Soloy received the message and was ready with a hammer and broom that he sent to Bristow via a heaving line when the ship reached the berg. Bristow knocked the ice off the rotor, started up and flew to his more accustomed perch, relieved that Captain Anderson saw enough value in his life and his machine to come looking for him. Noticing that the whales didn't notice his aerial presence until he hovered just 15 feet above them, Bristow began toying with the idea of aerial harpooning. Chasers operated on a spotting to harpooning ratio of about 20 to 1, but a helicopter, by flying low and slow, might establish a 1 to 1 ratio. Bristow also deemed an aerial approach more humane, where a chaser might expend multiple, in some cases half a dozen, explosive harpoons to kill a large animal. A helicopter harpooner could select the exact position of their shot and make it from close range. Rather than explosive tips, the aerial harpooner might employ the electric shock mode to kill their prey. He kept his ideas quiet while aboard the Olympic Challenger, as harpooners were highly paid and extremely jealous of their job. Best not to upset the people with the biggest splody guns and a lot to lose if someone applied technology that made them redundant. In a side gig, Bristow tested an immersion suit for the Frankenstein Rubber Company, agreeing to wear at least half of the equipment at all times while aboard the ship and to spend at least 30 hours in icy waters. The constant rubber thug preceding him about the ship didn't warrant notice amongst the larger thug of whale butchery and blubber rendering, but creating the pool in which he clocked up the requisite hours of full immersion testing caused an extra layer of derision among the crew, already primed to think poorly of the aviation contingent. What sounded like an easy 6,000 pounds ended up hard yards but the company received naval contracts for their product as a result of his testing, and Bristow later purchased their suits for his own pilots. Onassis carried on using the Hiller 360 in further seasons, but Alan Bristow wanted to take the helicopter project to a more professional level, with a hangar for maintenance out of the weather, and two machines to allow a swap out whenever one needed to return for fuel, and two seat machines so pilots could share the flying, and larger machines with greater endurance. 
he sent letters of introduction to all the major whaling companies. Unilever and Salveson, the biggest whaling companies of the day, didn't express any interest, but Melsom and Melsom took the project on. They purchased a Westland Dragonfly, a British license-built Sikorsky S51, one of the models Bristow previously cut from consideration as being too big, and hired Bristow to pilot it and to provide engineering support. He gave them the specs of the turntable helipad they needed to incorporate to the stern of their factory ship, the Norval, and the modifications necessary to make a Westland Dragonfly into the best possible whale spotter, and then began sounding out backers for his electric airborne whale harpoon. In seven years of aerial spotting for the whaling fleets, Air Whaling Limited only experienced two airframe losses and one crew death, which sounds like a lot to us in the 2020s, but in the 1950s, when helicopters were still pretty new and pretty crappy, that's not a bad record. The second airframe loss and first death occurred during a training flight on the way south with the Salveson ships, but I can't find much information about the incident. True to Anassas' shitty but highly successful business strategy, in which whaling was not the future because the whales weren't going to be around for much longer, his fleet paid no heed to the internationally agreed seasons, quotas and no-take categories geared to protect whale stocks. Imagine a Japanese whaling vessel coming off the hero in an encounter in the Southern Ocean. Hard to comprehend in light of recent decades seeing them condemned as the eternal villains of Southern waters, but a Japanese ship reported the Olympic challenger letting slip three humpback carcasses, an illegal catch at that point, and skulking off behind an iceberg to hide. In a series of leaks, mostly driven by German government bribes to high-ranking crew members aboard the Olympic challenger, microfilm copies of purses documents and testimonies about whaling regulation infractions saw Norwegian whaling companies successfully impound Onassis whaling oil reserves in Hamburg and Rotterdam. One Norwegian working on the Flensing plan claimed that any whale coming in range of the harpoons was killed, with fewer than 1% of the catch comprising adult animals. Onassis rode his ships hard and put them away wet, bribing officials when necessary to ensure the fleet made money regardless of the outcome for the industry or for the whales. A few people breaking the rules or operating below the expected standard can act as rationalisation for other people to similarly act like douche nozzles, and Onassis whaling enterprise received censure both for the harm it did to stocks on its own and for the encouragement it offered to other operators to fast forward the tragedy of the commons based on a, well everyone else is doing it and I don't want to be the one left with lower profit margins when the last whale is flensed, mentality. I recounted in episode Dumpty Tum that until recently most nations defined their territorial waters as the range of the cannonballs, ships and shore batteries could lob at one another, that being three nautical miles. Once developments in artillery blew that range away, most nations shifted to a 12 nautical mile limit on sovereign territorial waters. In 1945, due to the recently ended Second World War and the rapidly developing Cold One, the United States declared exclusive jurisdiction over the waters lying up to 200 nautical miles from shore under the Truman Declaration, though this was more a do not cross this line or find out why boundary than anything to do with maritime resources. Chile and Peru became the first nations to declare exclusive economic zones out to the 200 nautical mile limit, legislation to that effect passing in both nations in 1947. This limit eventually received international recognition, the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea passing in 1982, but until then Chile and Peru stood alone on the matter, and that largely didn't matter to the ice coffee narrative until the Peruvian government spotted the Olympic Challenger and its chasers operating within 200 nautical miles of the Peruvian coast on November 13, 1954. The Peruvian Navy began a pursuit. The whalers started out to sea. Peruvian ships caught two of the chaser boats while 126 miles off the Peruvian coast, but the factory vessel and its remaining chasers kept up their pace and departed the 200 nautical mile boundary. The Peruvian Navy applied the principle of hot pursuit, a common law legal fiction by which an arrest is assumed at the start of a chase rather than at the end of one 
because an attempt to escape isn't a valid legal defence. The origins lie in 12th century England and a legal concept about someone else's animal damaging your property and you holding on to that animal until the matter is resolved and you being allowed to chase the animal down even after it left your property. In modern times, it's mostly about law enforcement agencies gaining a mandate for violence beyond their usual jurisdiction if, and only if, they are involved in a sustained attempt to make an arrest. The Peruvian Navy called on the Peruvian Air Force for assistance, and aircraft armed with bombs and machine guns flew out to fire and drop ordnance across the bows of two chasers and the Olympic Challenger. This upping of the ante brought the chase to a close 364 miles off the Peruvian coast. Captain Wilhelm Reckart claimed he threw all the ship's documentation into the sea because he thought Peru and Panama were at war. But the courts didn't buy this gambit and the Peruvian government charged the five captains of the captured vessels three million US dollars in fines for fishing without a license, holding the ships as collateral against payment. This kicked off a brief spat with Panama kicking up about the Peruvian military firing on its ships. But most of the noise came from Onassis bribing people to cut up on his behalf. Onassis' attempt to break the US monopoly on moving oil out of Saudi Arabia earned him enough US government ire that the CIA probably played a part in the whole caper, and the whaling game suddenly seemed too much headache for too little profit. Onassis paid the fines, or at least let people say he did, as some doubt exists as to whether money actually changed hands, or if the chagrin of a perceived loss of face was deemed enough in light of the difficulty involved in getting money out of the greedy bastard's grip. The ships headed south to work the Southern Ocean once more, but Onassis sold his whaling interest to Kayo Koyu Hogai and moved his money elsewhere. The Olympic Challenger continued to operate in the Southern Ocean as the Kayo Koyu Maru, and its chasers sailed as Otori Maru numbers 1 through 11. Meanwhile, Alan Bristow sought funding and insight for his airborne, humane harpoon. Dr Schubert of the Hamburg Marine Institute already established the best place to place an electric harpoon as being just behind one of the flippers with an optimum range of 20 to 25 yards. United Whalers, one of the British whaling interests, already examined how to kill whales more efficiently and tested electrifying harpoon systems aboard the chasers operating in support of their factory vessel, Balena, in 1949, to limited effect. Their gun didn't fire reliably or with the oomph of the Bofors standard unit, and the forerunner, the cable attaching the harpoon to the towing line, invariably threw up some difficulty in transmitting the electrical shock. That being the main event, and already £120,000 in the hole on the program, and with generators and wiring constantly sabotaged by Norwegian crew members who didn't like the look of this new technology and its potential to diminish their role in the wild cash grab, Unilever shelved the project. Bristow figured flying the technology in for the kill ruled out the possibility of Norwegian sabotage and convinced Unilever to give him a shot at solving the technical problems. Working with Siemens Engineering, a copper core forerunner strong enough to withstand the accelerations involved came into being and Jack Woolley, the helicopter engineer Bristow hired to maintain his machine in the coming whaling season, devised a spooling system that allowed the cable to follow the harpoon smoothly and deliver its deadly charge. But the 1952-53 Antarctic whaling season came on before the bare bones of this aerial death tech took shape. Meanwhile, Melsum and Melsum bought a modified Dragonfly, featuring long-range fuel tanks, floats, HF radio and radio direction finding array, and parked it up on the turntable helipad they installed on the stern of the Norval. Norwegian airline Bratens provided a second engineer, Mickey Mork, and pilot Jan Kirkhorn. Bristow trained Kirkhorn in deck landings and creeping line search and box search techniques on the voyage through the tropics. With no hangar for the Dragonfly, the engineers worked in some atrocious conditions, but managed major operations, including an engine change and gearbox overhaul, regardless. At Bristow's request, Flight Refueling Limited, 
a company started by aviation record breaker Sir Alan Cobham, in order to solve the problems involved in the practice denoted in its name, eventually leading to the probe and drogue system still in use today. Developed a system for refueling helicopters from chaser boats to increase their search range and to offer a safety margin for the aviators, though fuel only transferred successfully in calm conditions. In spite of the advantages this system offered, no whaling fleet adopted the new ship-to-helicopter system, though flight refuelling did sell it to several navies. With their only safe landing site on the move and highly changeable weather, whaling fleet pilots needed to remain on top of their fuel fraction and consumption rate to ensure they kept avgas in hand to handle emergent situations. Happy with their aerial advantage, Melson and Melson asked Bristow to return the following season, and he recommenced work on his electric harpoon. Bristow arranged with Westland to act as their exclusive agent to the World Whaling Fleet. He hired one of his former students, Alan Green, to take his place aboard the Norvale the following whaling season so he could concentrate on building up his company and developing his electric harpoon. The Norwegian pilot Jan Kirkhorn put an early end to that season when he ran the Dragonfly out of fuel, returning to the ship in adverse conditions. He survived the ditching, but the helicopter didn't. With compelling data from his two seasons flying as the eyes of whaling fleets, Bristow landed a contract with Salveson to supply four whirlwind helicopters, Westland's license-built copy of Sikorsky's large S-55 and crews to operate and maintain them in the following austral summer aboard two factory vessels supported by 30 chasers. The company agreed to make hangars to house the airframes and the crews expanded to incorporate a spotter, usually a second pilot able to share the flying, making it easier to keep track of fuel and navigation while still keeping a thorough lookout on the situation on the water. The hangar and helipad Salvesons built onto their ships accommodated two machines, but only with the rotors folded and the wheels fitted. The bulky pontoon floats carried either side of the machines to offer a degree of safety in the event of a water landing required fitting before and removal after each flight, a pain in the bum for all involved. Sikorsky, designing his S-55 with naval operations in mind, ensured the rotor head incorporated blades that folded back along the tail for close storage. So the mechanism was simple and sound, but it added another layer of pre and post flight shenanigans not experienced with the smaller machines in previous seasons. The whirlwinds often departed over the manufacturer's maximum weight by several hundred pounds of fuel. The heavy piston engined whirlwind didn't like hovering even when within the stated load limits, and the pilots needed to push their aircraft into clear air as quickly as possible to achieve translational lift in order to remain airborne. Any attempt to achieve and hold a hover over the helipad while overweight resulted in the machine settling back to the deck as its own rotor wash reduced the effective lift, and with bulkheads forward and the lifeboat deck several metres above the helipad, the pilot needed to jump the machine into a hover and quickly dive over the windward edge of the ship before the rotor downwash forced their steed back onto the deck. Clear of the ship, forward airspeed increased the lift generated by the main rotor, allowing the pilot to curtail their drop toward the sea surface and to climb to their optimal hunting height for the conditions. As the fuel burnt off, the machine came back to its factory specified operating weight and hovering on landing didn't pose the same challenge as it did in taking off. Jack Woolley brought work into Air Whaling Limited doing small run precision engineering and this, in turn, brought in specialists able to solve the various problems thrown up in the electric harpoon project. Yasha Shapiro, designer of the Sierra Air Horse heavy lift helicopter conceived a lightweight generator to provide the lethal charge. With Westland concerned about the effects of recoil on the airframe, Bristow sought a recoilless option, seeking out the designer of the projectile infantry anti-tank, Lieutenant Colonel Stuart Blacker. Colonel Blacker's Piat 
launched a three-pound rocket-propelled explosive charge able to penetrate 100 millimeters of armor. Enthusiastic about a second life for his invention, Colonel Blacker sold Bristow the patent for the Piat for a thousand pounds, this price including training for Bristow's crew to anti-tank battalion accuracy. Woolley adapted the firing tube to accommodate a larger projectile carrying no explosives but containing a cylinder of compressed gas by which to inflate the whale carcass once the electrical cable and the airborne Shapiro generator did their deadly job. Westland Whirlwinds only held airworthiness certification for military use, and Westland showed no interest in working through the bureaucratic paperwork necessary to achieve the civilian tickets. Bristow, eager to clinch his four airframe sale to Salveson, took the task on, developing a test flying program sufficient to satisfy the Air Ministry, and then tasking his pilots with flying the scheme and writing the reports while converting to the new type. Jack Woolley trained engineers to maintain the increasingly heavy, increasingly complex machines the company took south. With helicopters and crews all good to go, the Air Whaling Limited team joined the Southern Harvester and the Southern Venturer for the 1953-54 whaling season, which went extremely well for all involved other than the whales. The following northern summer, Bristow's team gave their first demonstration of the airborne electric harpoon to five executives of the Netherlands Whaling Company. Alan Green drove the Dutch party across Weymouth Bay in a motorboat, towing a 44-gallon drum atop a pair of pontoons. Bristow flew the whirlwind, and Blacker aimed and fired the modified Piat from a tripod mounted on the cargo space doorway. From a height of 75 feet and at a speed of 22 knots, Blacker placed six harpoons in the drum and four into the pontoons it rode on, the last shot blowing the assembly apart in a thoroughly compelling display of technological efficacy. While operating whirlwinds in the Southern Ocean that season, Bristow received word from the Air Whaling Office. The Dutch customers wanted to buy the patent for the aerial harpoon and to engage Air Whaling to operate the system and four helicopters from their ships the following Austral summer. Air Whaling Limited made its first million on the resulting contract. And the aerial harpoon never went into service. Too many gunners, who also held controlling interests in large swathes of the whaling industry, felt threatened by the new development. The International Whaling Commission voted, at a meeting in Sandefjord, that any helicopter used in hunting whales counted as a chaser boat. <laughs> that any helicopter used in hunting whales counted as a chaser boat, reducing any factory vessel's fleet by the number of helicopters employed. This effectively banned aerial harpooning without actually addressing the technology. Chasers didn't just harpoon the whales, they towed them to the factory ship. The underpowered and short-range whirlwinds stood no chance of replacing chaser vessels in that dual role capacity, so the new technology never saw first use. Alan Bristow left the whaling industry for mineral oil exploration working with Douglas Tinlegs Beta for Shell out of Doha in Qatar for many years. The companies he set up with spotter helicopters used them for several seasons beyond his departure, but even airborne eyes couldn't save the whaling industry from imploding over the following decades. But that's a story for another episode. In 2018, the French Austral and Antarctic Territories and the French Ministry of Culture released a 12-minute video recounting the story of Port Jean d'Arc, featuring a narrative based on the diaries of Raymond Ralliard de Batty and a 3D visualisation of the whaling station based on laser scans of the site made during conservation and stabilisation works. It's an incredible way to share the shape of the history of the place without all the bothersome fuel use, carbon emissions, soot deposition, zodiac transfers and being called a Nazi by a pig ignorant fuckwit 
the Antarctic Tourism Industry incorporates, and I'll append a link to the video in the show notes on the Ice Coffee WordPress site. And only there, because I got kicked off Facebook, because someone reported my posts as hate speech. They weren't hate speech, but the auto banhammer is open to abuse, and after this second round of a petulant middle-aged white guy taking a heroic dose of umbrage over what I've written about his privilege, I'm not going to try and return. Take care and appreciate your coffee, and furthermore I consider that Carthage must be destroyed and that Hadley Mearsham is best avoided.